Yeah, so today we have Keith, who's here. Thank you so much for coming in, Keith. I'm uh, I'm excited to hear you and, and glad to have you here. It's all yours. Thanks, Jim. My name is Keith. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I always say that one for me, you know, that's I've been saying that for a long time, so I just keep saying it, you know. I have a bit of a cold, so I can't project my voice very well just at the minute. Um, <clears throat> so I'm a bit nervous, you know, a slightly stressful day just anyway. But, uh, yeah, I get nervous doing things. I get nervous even sharing at meetings, you know. Uh, I, I did the chair. I don't know when it was, a couple of months ago. And uh, that was the first time I did it for, you know, 25 years or something. Uh, and I sort of felt a bit of pressure that, that I shouldn't repeat myself, but sure, it doesn't, doesn't really matter, does it? Um, uh, I know most of the people here, and you, you probably know a bit of my story. I'm in, where I am right now is I'm sort of okay, if you know what I mean. Uh, I've had a, a, a very... Um, uh, I suppose bad time for the last four or six months with stuff going on in life. Uh, you know, uh, struggles uh, with my health and, and trying to get attention from the health service and uh, trying to get benefits and all that's kind of just dropped away just right now. I've kind of given up on it. I'm not fighting for any money and I'm not fighting. I've been told I'm not getting operations and that's it. And, uh, it's put me in a funny place, and, and I would compare it to very early days in AA, and the word I would use, well, the word I, f- I feel uh, some pressure to use would be surrender, because that's like a, a big word in AA, and that's uh, the word I would have been used, but I I think it doesn't feel like surrender, it feels like being defeated, just really, just completely beaten. But it's good. It's good in a way because I, I have just given up and it's great to stop the fight. You know, with the big machine, uh, all red tape and all, I've just I've given up on it completely. And so theoretically that makes me in, in a better place. Uh, but I am um, somewhere along the line, I've lost the ability to be happy. So I, I, I'm, I have a long history of being in and out of depression. So what I would say is right now I'm not depressed and I probably haven't been depressed since something like 2016. And, uh, you know, it's great. I'm very, very thankful for that. I hope I'm never depressed again. But if you were to ask me what it feels like not being depressed, I don't I don't really know how to describe it. You know, I, and that's because, um, you know, along with the kind of uh, ever-present threat of depression i have uh resentment and anger and they're just always with me so they they've come back with a vengeance so now my anger and my resentment is a um a bit more irrational than it has been for the last four months because i've had real things to be really angry about and now i haven't so much basically because i've decided not to but uh, that's i just revert to kind so anyway the uh the model I'm going to use for, for this share just to tell you about myself that the old the old way of saying it was to tell you what it was like and what happened, meaning what it was like, what made me drink, and then what happened why I stopped drinking and what it was like what it's like now. So uh 
I'm getting on a bit, I suppose. I'm, I'm not old, old, but I'm 62. And um, I've had a few different lives, you know, like most people, um, different personas. And my drinking career overlaps a few of those in a, in a big kind of Venn diagram. Um, so I'll not go right the very beginning. In my very early life, I was traumatized uh not sexually abused, but uh, related to that, I was traumatized in the hospital around my genitals, and it left me very confused. So my whole life long, I've been very confused about gender and sexuality, and you could put it lots of different ways, you know. And I, I don't really take on any of the labels. The labels have changed dramatically over my lifetime, so I don't, I don't use any of the labels. I just say confused. I'm just confused, and. Uh, there's a couple of things that come up in AA meetings, which always make me realize just how, uh, how um, well, how confused I am, how in trouble I am. And one of them was actually this morning at a meeting was that, and the theme was being your authentic self. And that one always just hands sends my head spinning. You know, you know, for me and people like me, authentic self goes along with phrases like you know coming out and that sort of thing. And uh, I'd have no idea what any of that means. Uh, <laughs> the only the only time that I ever accepted one of these labels was a long time ago. I was at a big conference of people who do counseling, uh, you know, counsel people and be counseled, both directions. And uh, I think it was a huge meeting, hundreds of people over in England, I think it was, and the, the theme was uh, LGBT, I think. I think that was the overall theme of this. And uh, a woman stood up and made an announcement, you know, a technical announcement about something, about some meeting or something. And she said, uh, uh, as a bisexual, wish it to say, a person with an impossible decision embedded in their ESM <laughs> and then she went on talking and I thought what what was that what did she say there <laughs> a bisexual which is to say a person with an impossible decision embedded in their ESM so I had to say what, what the fuck what did she just say what's an ESM an ESM is an early sexual memory which you use when you're counseling people but you just say to them Tell me your early sexual memory. And it can be anything. It could be about riding a bicycle or anything at all. But you, somehow or other, uh, relate that to your sexuality. I just thought, fuck, she just described me. She just described me. That's what happened to me. Uh, and that's why you ask me if I'm heterosexual, I say, no. Homosexual, no. Trans, no. Cis, no. Everything is no. I will not and cannot make a decision about any of that stuff. It's very dangerous and impossible for me to make a decision because at the age of about six, uh, having been very confused and humiliated in the operating theater, uh, after it, my mum said to me, no. Keith, everything's fine. We thought you were going to lose 
your wee man, meaning your genitals. But it's okay. Everything's all right. But I want you to promise me, if you ever have pain down there again, you will tell me. And at the age of six, I thought, yeah, rock on. Like, I'm going to tell you, look what happened. And at that moment, I was faced with an utterly, utterly impossible decision. To say yes to my mum and condemn myself to torture in the future. Or to say no to her and lose her. And no matter what, I lost her. I disconnected with my mother at the age of six because she offered me no options, no options. So I said yes, and it was a lie, and that was the end of my connection with her. And she's in a home now, and I'm never going to see her. And I don't say that I love her. I don't. And she didn't do anything wrong, but that's where it left me. And so that's present with me every day. So that's one thing where my head spins when people talk about your authentic self. I cannot answer any questions about any of that stuff. It's too dangerous. I'm not with you on that. My inner child is alive and well, and he's totally in charge, and he's about seven years old. And he does all the talking, and he says, no, no. That's all he says, no. And I've literally written letters to him, and he just said no. <laughs> so <laughs> there's no point. I've given up on that one. Uh, so I kind of, I've, I've leapt into that talk, and that's the very heavy stuff there. I didn't really mean to jump into that. It wasn't, I, I talked about that stuff in the last time. I'm sure I wanted to try and talk about it a bit later and getting sober and all that. So I'm just going to jump ahead and not talk about that anymore. But that is me, you know, that really drives me, that early stuff. That's where I am. And so I was ready to be depressed, and I got depressed, I think, maybe around, you know, in my teens, you know, I think I got full-blown depressed. Um, this is, none of this is cheerful. I'm very sorry. Hopefully I'll get cheerful later on. Uh, so <laughs> I think it was around about the age of 12 or something like that. There was a program on TV called World at War. And I watched that, and I probably shouldn't have seen that because it was, you know, Auschwitz and Belsen, and it was uh, piles of skeletal bodies being bulldozed into a big hole. And I just thought, yep, that's about right. That's about right. Yep, yep, that's what I thought. I will never laugh again. I will never smile again. That's it. I will never forget that. I wake up every morning, and that'll just be projected on the sky from now on. And I kind of sought out horror like that. Uh, and I remember <laughs> my dad caught me once running into the kitchen to tell I had a very, very bad education, but for I think for a couple of days we had a proper teacher in our school just for a couple of days who told us some real stuff. I mean, my school was really, really that bad. They didn't educate us at all. They weren't interested. Uh, anyway, this uh, temporary teacher told us about Dante and, uh, you know, Divine Comedy. And I got very, very excited about this, and I read it up in the encyclopedia about uh, Over the Door in the Forest said, Abandon 
all hope ye that enter. And I thought, what a great phrase, what a great phrase. So I ran in to tell my mum this. My mum was about to go in the hospital to have a hysterectomy. And I said, Mum, Mum, listen to this. Abandon all hope ye that enter. And my dad called me. He says, what the fuck are you saying? <laughs> I was just so into it, you know. Anyway, there was me, miserable as fuck, <laughs> the whole time. And of course, you know, puberty, I'm not knowing what to do with that because I didn't know what I was. I didn't know I was a boy or what I was. And the school was crap, so I didn't get any education. And I ended up in a factory uh, at the age of 16. And I was condemned to work there for 10 years, just led by the nose. I didn't make any decisions about my life at all. So these are these different lives that I had. So I had 10 years basically working in a factory, supposedly as, you know, an aircraft engineer, but I never did any work ever, ever. I could hide with it. So I just skived the whole time and avoided working and nipped out over the wall, you know, ran over the railway tracks and got away. After about, I don't know, six months, no, no, yeah, no, the second day I was in the factory, I was approached by a guy. He said he played drums and he heard that I played keyboards and would I come and play in their band. And I had done a few gigs. I did a few heavy metal gigs when I was about 15. It went down well. So that's my other persona is up on stage uh, playing music. And that's always suited me very well because I, I didn't know how to be a person in the crowd. So up on stage was the only place to be. It was nice and isolated, you know. And I've done that all over the years. I've done that. I can't remember the names of the people I play with. I'm terrible. It's nothing social about it. I just play the music, you know. And um, so by six months into that period, I met the guy who taught me to drink, who taught me to drink. And he was called Gordon, and he was the guitarist in the band. And I just looked at him. We met. And a place called the Pound. I don't think anybody here would know that name. Pound was a very famous shithole in Belfast where all the best bands played. And it was a dangerous building and it was a very unhealthy place to be. And he came in and he bought three pints and they were all for him. <laughs> I thought, that's impressive. I want to drink like that. So I did. I just cottoned on to him. And a couple of days later, I went out drinking with his mates. And I got drunk, and it was spiritual. It was absolutely spiritual. So they talk about there being different types of alcoholics. I don't know how many people in the room will uh, recognize that story. I've heard a lot of people talk, and I know some people don't. We're all different types of alcoholics. But for me, it's kind of why I always introduce myself as an alcoholic, because it is very, I don't know, quintessential to what I am. You know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's something about me genetically or uh, neurologically or whatever, but uh, you know, I I didn't see other people really experiencing the thing that I was experiencing because they could have a drink and stop. No, 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 no. When I drank, I just drank and drank and drank. It was so good. It was so good. Um, I was actually happy. I was laughing like a hyena and loving it. And there was no danger anymore. And there was no worries. And I didn't think about all the shit that I was always thinking about. And I lay on my back in the grass and laughed. 
And the next day, I wanted to do it again, and I did it again. And I remember for about three weeks, we just got totally pissed every day. And I just thought it was brilliant, and I hoped it never stopped. But it did, of course. You can't keep it up forever, money and stuff like that. But I, so my drinking career was about 18 years drinking. And it was I was drinking alcoholically from the first day. And I never drank socially. It wasn't about conversation or anything like that. It was about getting drunk. Uh, and I and I was sort of uh, very good at it, if you know what I mean, like a kind of function, or else people looked after me. I don't know, maybe luck, you know. Belfast was a very dangerous place back then, and I drank in very dangerous places uh, on both sides of the conflict, you know, I would drink with, you know, people who had guns um, on both sides. And I always got away with it. It was something like just being the drunk, just because you were drunk, so devoted to drink, you got, but I, I don't kid myself, it was, there was nothing like, it was just luck. I, I was in places where it was really seriously dangerous. So, another persona I have or had was uh, being a Christian. So, all that drinking started about the age of 16, and I just went hard at it. Wow, 20 minutes passed, right? I, I was intended to get more into present time doing this. Sorry, I don't want to go on forever. Um, anyway, around about the age of 20, I met another guy in work and he read books and I'd never read books and he introduced me to some great uh, novelists and after about a year of knowing him very well because I was always around at his drawing board just talking I, I never worked I mean seriously never did it work I did work in 10 years uh, I went uh, if you were looking for me you always said he's in our he's in radio test you always said that was the that was the code. He's in radio test. Radio test, RT for short, which stands for Rising Tide, which is the name of the pub in the docks that we all went to. So I went into work and I would go into work at half eight and at nine o'clock I'd be in the Rising Tide all day long. I mean, just never worked. Anyway, it was just one guy. I liked him to work to meet him. And after knowing him for a year, somebody's walking past and they called him reverend and i said why did they call you reverend and he said oh, i was just making fun because i'm a christian and i never knew he was a christian and i really admired him for that but he never mentioned that and i once again was led by the nose this is this kind of thing that i've only recently come to think about i keep having these revelations about my life and how i really am i i don't make decisions i'm, I'm kind of led by the nose by people so there was the guitarist in the band who led me on the nose, led me by the nose into the pub, and then this guy led me by the nose into church, and that really suited me because once again uh, uh, it was a Protestant church, and we learnt about how uh, the five points of Calvinism, point number one is total depravity, that no human being is in any way capable of any good thought or action. I thought, yep, yep, that that explains everything. It just suited me down to the ground. Also, uh, it suited me that I somehow had been protected from being normal sexually, that that, that, uh, that made me worthy for heaven for some reason. Anyway, uh, I was aware that I was a drunkard and I was a Christian and that didn't quite go together. So I was a holy drunk for a while. And then I decided that I had to stop drinking and I stopped drinking for the year of 1984. And I was very, very depressed for that whole year. And I went on to antidepressants. And I was, you know, I didn't know I was alcoholic. Uh, 
And towards the end of that year, I was talking to a friend and we just got a bottle of wine and we just said, fuck it. And I drank a bottle of wine and I thought, this is it. This is it. I must remember to never be sober again. This is it. It was just that total revelation once again. It was totally spiritual. I think Bill W. wrote to Carl Young about that, that it's no surprise that spirits, alcoholic spirits are called spirits. The source is the same. For some of us, that is, for me, definitely spiritual. So then I weaned myself away from religion deliberately, learned to swear again, learned to blaspheme, and stepped out of it. Because I wasn't really ever emotionally Christian. It was an intellectual thing, you know. And I took up drinking again seriously, and I got something like another eight years out of it, so whatever. And uh, then I was, uh, well, I made a good decision somewhere along the line. I decided to leave the factory and go to university and study philosophy. And I did that. And I made that decision in a pub at about two o'clock in the morning after a prayer meeting in church. And I just was watching these two guys boxing on the TV. And I thought, I'm going to be a philosopher. And that was a great decision. It took me a year to do that. And then I I didn't go to university to get a degree. I went to university to get a PhD. And I did. It took me about nine years. All right. I became a doctor of philosophy. And it was during that period that I got sober because I really drank myself into the ground. I thought leaving the factory would be a great idea and I wouldn't have to drink to drown my misery. But all that happened was that I just had a lot more freedom to do it. So I just really did it a lot. And uh, just kind of destroyed my brain. And uh, my my bottom, which I think was in 1993, I say my bottom was that I realized I, I, I couldn't really think anymore. Um, you know, I was supposed to be writing this doctoral thesis and I had great sentences and I could write them down sitting in the pub. And the idea was that next morning I would write, create a paragraph and I got to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't, I could barely say a sentence, let alone write it down. And I realized this is not working. And uh, the other thing, I had a, a moral bottom. Uh, I I was a Samaritan volunteer. I don't know if, if everybody knows that phrase, if there's an equivalent of that in the States, Samaritans, where you answer the phone to people who are suicidal. And um, uh, somebody phoned up, a young girl, but younger than me, and she said she thought she was an alcoholic, and she told me about how much she drank. And I drank, you know, more than that. So I said to her, well, that's not really a problem. Don't worry about that. We all like to drink. And I knew fine well that she was really needed help, but I couldn't uh, I couldn't say that because I have to admit that I was the same. So I just uh, just didn't help her. And uh, there was a guy in there. I went in to do an all night session of answering the phone, and I'd been in a pub crawl before I went down, so I was drunk to answer the phone to suicide suicidal people, and. Uh, I walked through the door and I tried to have a conversation with the guy who was going to be with all night. And I said, God, there's no good pubs in Belfast anymore. I've been around Belfast. And he said, oh, well, I don't drink anymore myself. I'm an alcoholic. I go to AA. And I thought, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> it's going to be a hard night. <laughs> but he just told me how it was for him. And that was various things I got. Meeting various people made me realize, ah, you know what? This is the end. I, I can't drink anymore. And my sister, who... Many of you know uh, from the rooms here. She 
went to AA about 18 months before me, and that was a big blow because she was my best drinking buddy. We just sat in the pub all day together and spoke sarcastically. And uh, I was very annoyed with her. I didn't talk to her very much. And any time I tried to talk to her, all she did was she just came out with this fucking bullshit about the stuff she was hearing in these meetings. And I said, you don't even sound like yourself. You know, where's the sarcasm? Where's the gallows laugh, you know? And she was just, she just sounded different. And so I find this very hard to talk about because it makes me cry. I'm just looking to see if my sister's at the meeting. She's not. No, she's not. Uh, I'll, I'll just finish this. I was going to say more about... Ach, how long do you want me to go on, Jim? As long as you want. You can keep, please, keep going. I'm trying to keep it in our five minutes. I try to keep it down. Um, so, I was sitting in a quite a nice hotel for a change instead of a dive where I usually drink. And I had an inch of Guinness sitting at the bottom and I just knew I couldn't drink anymore. I just knew it was done. I used to just sit in the pub and the various teams used to come and go and I was always there. I was always constant and they didn't really, they'd already been there literally eight hours and they were just coming and starting drinking and I was joining them with them. And I wasn't really making jokes anymore. I was just sitting there with an absolutely beetroot face. Very angry. And uh, I sat for about an hour looking at this inch of Guinness and uh, I went out this is before mobile phones went out into the hall, the, the, the phone in the hallway, and a phone sent me up. And I said, sorry, my sister. And I said, um, all right, I'll go to one of your meetings. And she said, oh, will you? Call me back tomorrow if you don't have a drink today. I don't think she likes that story. I let her tell her side of it. <laughs> Apparently, she was, she just wanted to help me. But there was an old hand standing beside her just shaking his head. He didn't say please. He didn't say please. So I phoned back the next day and I said please. And I went out for a Chinese with them. They wouldn't let me go to a meeting. The day after that I went to the meeting and the guy who became a very good friend, not quite a sponsor, but very like it. I sat down beside him and he was a grizzly old bastard, you know. Uh, veteran of the uh, paramilitaries and all that. And he said, you just sit there. Don't you open your mouth. You don't know anything. <laughs> it was a different day as to nowadays, you know. It was tough love. It was, but I needed it. That's what I needed. And uh, and they said to me, you're in the right place. And I said, if you have to cut my legs off, just let me have a drink, just do it. I had had enough. So people tell all different stories in here and they talk about having relapse and stuff. Relapse is not a possibility for me. I am scared shitless of having a drink, you know. And I've learned not to say I will never drink again, but, you know, these are very liberal rooms now and I feel like consenting at all. So I'll tell you, I don't think I'm going to have a drink again. I haven't had a drink for 30 years and it's, I'm petrified of the idea of having a drink, you know. So anyway, I'll just sum up. Um, uh especially the people who are just not around long, uh, you 
go to meetings. <laughs> just go to meetings. That's really all you have to do. Go to meetings. <laughs> it's dead, dead simple, this. Uh, I used to say that to people. People come in, knew the room. Back when I went, I did about, you know, 20 hours a week of meetings when you had to actually go to them. And I just sat there and looked out the window, didn't listen to anybody, born old bastards, all been to prison and all, didn't care what they had to say. But I just knew there was nowhere else I could be. That, that's the only place for me. And eventually it got better. It took a long time. I would say it took two years before I could start to put any thoughts together. And five years before I was like picking up the reins from where I left off when I was 17. Five years, I would say. I hope it's not as bad as that for other people, but it was really slow for me, and I was very sad and very depressed and miserable. I'd lost everything. I'd lost 400 friends, you know. It wasn't the life and soul of the party anymore. I was a bad drinker, not a good drinker. It was a horrible thing to admit. Um, and after that five years, I kind of stopped going to meetings, and I didn't go to meetings for, I, I don't know, I've never done the maths on it. started again in 2020. But I, I probably stopped about, I don't know, 1997, something like that. But it, it's I, but I'm AA through to the core, you know, and friends who got into trouble. I was always there for trying to take them to meetings, but I just didn't go to meetings for myself. And it didn't do any harm. And I, you know what I mean, if I ever got near having a drink, it was even thought I would have been at a meeting. Uh I'm a bit worried about sharing that because I'm not recommending to anybody to stop going to meetings. And I emphasize I went for five years solid, you know. Um, just just finished with, um, I hope I haven't entertained anybody too much and I hope I haven't been too wise because I was kind of worried about that because I have, I have things like hangovers when I do that. Um, it's just a constant. I feel like a failure really do feel like a failure because of my early stuff. Whenever there's a wee hint of something going well or people people like what I'm saying or even like me, I I feel bad. It just makes me feel bad. It just does. So that's a really funny one. Don't tell me that I was brilliant. Please don't tell me I was brilliant. I don't know what to do with that. I'll just feel, I'll have a hangover if you do that. I'll think, oh, what the fuck was I saying? I'll just be like, you know. I'm going to stop there abruptly, if that's okay. Thanks very much.